When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. The Slate Audio Book Club is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of The Goldfinch, Donna Tartt's big, big novel about a stolen painting, a bombing at the Met, an orphan teen, furniture restoration, Las Vegas. It's about everything in the world. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I am here in Slate's DC Recording Studio with Hannah Rosen. Hello, Hannah. Hi, Dan. And joining us from New York is Slate culture critic Megan O'Rourke. Hey, Megan. Hey, Dan. Is always the case in the audiobook club, we will be spoiling plot details. So if you are a person who cares about that, press pause, go read the book. It will take you few minutes, then come back and um, listen to the rest of the podcast. But if you don't care, then just listen to us. And there is a lot of plot to spoil. There's tons of plot, so much plot. And one of the things I want to talk about in this conversation is whether there's too much plot, as James Wood of The New Yorker seems to think, or if there's maybe even not enough plot. I can't imagine who would think that. That was just a rhetorical (laughs) device I said. Seems impossible. But so with a book this big and this sprawling and this eventful, maybe sort of the way to get into it is to sort of talk our way through it. There's so much to talk about and so much that I'm sure each of you wants to bring to it that maybe just a good way to start is with a setup, which is we have Theo Decker, who is a 13-year-old living in New York with his single mom. The dad is out of the picture. He disappeared like a year ago. Theo has been suspended from school, and they're about to go to a meeting with the principal. But before the meeting, he and his mom go to the Met. They're in a show devoted to the Dutch masters and other figurative painters. And then a bomb goes off, killing Theo's mom, sending Theo into the foster care system with a painting in his bag that he has stolen off the floor of the gallery where it fell called The Goldfinch, the painting that is on the cover of the book. So we're immediately set up as this is a bunch of different books at once. It's a book about an orphan and sort of his path to being an adult and the various struggles that life will throw in his way. It's uh, a sort of a crime novel in which the crime takes place like 10 pages in, and then it doesn't really pay off for a long, 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 long time. And it's also sort of a mystery, the mystery of, of what will happen to this boy and what kind of man will he turn out to be with the loss of the mother at the heart of it. So there are a lot of different ways to approach this novel, but I wanted to start with Theo and his mom because that's the first relationship and that's the first thing we start with in the book. And in fact, he starts by saying everything would have been better if she had survived. So my first question for you guys is, is that true? Would everything have been better for Theo Decker if his mom had survived? I want to, before I get into that question, take up this idea of the plot, because I actually don't think the book has a lot of plot. It just, (laughs) it has kind of setups and then, but not that much happens within the setups. And I think that's important. It is set up like a Dickensian novel. So you have these grand things that happen, which force philosophical questions on you. Like the book opens with a spectacular piece of plot, which is this explosion in the museum. 
but then that becomes a section about loss and mourning and relationships and how much control you don't have over your life and how things can happen to you. And that's essentially the, the thing that we're struggling with throughout the entire novel, which becomes a little too explicit at the end about fate and chance and luck. So then we have this vessel to discuss Theo's mother his relationship at the moment that she's lost to him. And that's intentional. You can't answer the question about whether his life would have been better if she had survived. You're essentially reading about loss. Wouldn't you say, Megan, as someone who has written about this exact subject? Yeah, no, I definitely would. I think that's what's really fascinating about the book is it invites you to ask exactly the question that Dan asked, which is, would he have been better off? And and the sentimentalist in me thinks, yes, of course he would have been. But the image I always have of loss, especially for people who lose a parent early on, is that it's like a tree that meets a restriction. And, you know, growing up against the side of a building, it has to grow in a totally different direction than it might otherwise have. So you never get to know what that tree would have been in a different circumstance. And I think that's Theo, right? And and one of the open questions at the end of the book is whether this is who he is in some fundamental way, because, of course, Theo's mother and he have this wonderful relationship and and there is a kind of mourning for a paradise lost that we are in for the first section of the book. And we feel that loss acutely because Tardis, she's so good at depicting their life together. But he is also his father's son and his father is is a, a bit of a sketchy character. Can I say something weird? I thought he was a girl. I thought Theo was a girl girl. for the first sort of 10 or 11 pages because – and this is is sort of a little bit of gender determinism on my part – because of his watchfulness about his mother and how he watched her and the closeness of their relationships and how he was so attuned to all of her movements, it took my brain kind of 10 pages to Uh, realize that I didn't read that as a girl thing but as a child of – divorced parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Like yeah. that's basically exactly the relationship I had with my mom when I was in high school. Huh, We're just watchful because he's yes, incredibly he's... watchful. He notices her movements. He's so attuned to when she, you know, leaves and comes into the house to what earrings she wears on certain occasions, to the way she walks, like to every sort of shift in her mood, the way that men watch her on the street or don't watch her in the street. I mean, he's just her and, clothes, and you know, what they what eat, she wears. clothes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, it was certainly was that way For me, I mean, my dad did not leave under such dramatic circumstances. It was just a normal garden variety divorce. But then it was me and my mom in this partnership, right? And we were, like, figuring out where life was going to go from here on out. And I think we were extremely, like, overly, uncomfortably attuned to what was going on in each other's lives Mm -hmm. to the point that I think with Theo and his mom as well, where it becomes, like, somewhat unhealthy. And I want to answer my own question to some extent, which is that I do think you sort of can – answer whether Theo would have been better off if she had survived. I think the book is like one big, long argument that, in fact, he wouldn't have, that all the crazy shit that happened to him, because it is more exciting and more interesting and wilder and weirder, that the book is an argument that this is a more rewarding and interesting life than he maybe ever could have had with her. There's this passage right near the end on page 761. You know, he talks about how everyone gets this message throughout your life. How do we know what's right for us? How do you know what to do? Every Disney princess knows the answer. He says, be yourself, follow your heart. And he says, only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart for its own unfathomable reasons leads one willfully and in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from health, domesticity, civic responsibility, and strong social connections, and all the blandly held common virtues, and instead straight towards a beautiful flare of ruin, self-immolation, disaster. 
Uh, so what should you do? Should you stop your ears with wax? Ignore all the perverse glory your heart is screaming at you? Set yourself on the course that will lead you dutifully toward the norm, reasonable hours, regular medical checkups, stable relationships, and steady career advancement, the New York Times, and brunch on Sunday? Or, like Boris, is it better to throw yourself headfirst and laughing into the holy rage calling your name? So he didn't know this was the kind of person he was. He didn't know he was his father's son exactly until his mom died. But that's the life that he ended up in. And I think the book is an argument that that's the life that was right for him. Well, I think the book is actually saying there's not a real divide between the two lives, which is to say, like, even before his mom dies, the whole reason his mother ends up dying in Theo's mind, of course, it's more complicated than that, is that he's been suspended from school, right? He's already doing these, you know, living this life of the the kind of... um, let's call it raffish to start with, um, right. you know, ends up being, a, you know, he, right. he ends probably up being one just of those for kids. smoking, but he thinks right. it's for breaking into houses. Right. And he's been smoking. He's been breaking into houses and he's ambivalent about these things, but he's also drawn to them. And he's drawn to this friend who is less ambivalent. Right. And throughout the book, that's what we see. He's he's drawn to Boris as this character. One of the most vivid parts of the book, I thought, I wonder what you guys thought. Oh, you I know, love Boris. Love yeah. Boris. We'll talk Boris. You know, <laughs> Boris is a big part of the book in his you know stay in Las Vegas. But he has a friend like that in Brooklyn, too, who's, who's less vivid. But yeah. Yeah, I think that passage, Dan, seems like the key to the book to me. And I had underlined that, too. So I'm so glad you read it, because I think in a way he's sort of saying, you know, either way, he would have become this person drawn between these two worlds, sort of given to doing things that are not, quote unquote, you know, the socially right thing to do or the socially acceptable thing to do. And he himself is resisting Boris in some ways and sort of thinks, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but then obviously is drawn toward it. And so I think this is a true struggle for Theo is like, what do you do? Do you kind of make a life that looks good or you make the life that your heart wants? Throughout the novel, it resists this idea that there's like a true path and then a diversion from the true path. You know, the way they resolve the question of the real antiques and the fake antiques or the real painting, the fake painting. It's not that there's – it's in the fakes in some sense. I mean, there's that's another – the end gets extremely discursive. Um, I mean, there are Extreme. pages and pages of sort of Theo and Boris. It's almost funny, the ending, on how, you know, the sort of philosophical musings that are slightly – maybe largely out of character, but which help resolve the book. But it does land at this question that there isn't such a thing as your true path, your true heart, your golden way that you're supposed to go. So let's talk about Boris because he is such a totally great character. So Theo lives for a year after the death of his mom with a family in New York, the Barbers. They have many mixed up relationships, but eventually his dad shows back up, drawn to some extent by the possibility of money out of Theo's mom's estate and out of Theo himself. And he and his girlfriend... Sandra with an X, take Theo (laughs) out to Las Vegas, to the outskirts of Las Vegas, to their horrible home in like a totally repossessed community where basically the only friend that Theo has is this guy, Boris, who is the son of a Russian industrialist who goes from city to city and town to town and country to country over the years and seems to have been in every country and lived every kind of life and leaps into life, you know, with both hands ready to grip it around the throat. And I, too, loved this guy. I sort of worried as those totally great Las Vegas scenes were going on that one of the reasons I loved him was that unlike Theo, he like did stuff like Theo does one thing, which is that he steals a painting, but then it takes him a really long time to like do other things. But Boris just does so many things over and over and over again. And it was so much fun to read. Um, what did you guys love about Boris besides his Russian aphorisms? This was my favorite section of the novel. I thought it was just very successful. It really was like, Dickens in America. You know, William Finnegan's Cold New World, you know, these right. sort of teenagers living at the edge of the earth, right. this sort of very American idea. And also the the sections about gambling, 
this is like Jackson Lear's subject about gambling in America and chance and luck. And yet it was funny. Like it wasn't very heavy. You know, there was just something so suffocating and endearing about their friendship. You got snippets of high school life. The way Boris talked was so funny. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it was realistic, but it was, I just thought, perfect in, in creating this kind of mafioso character. And you had a sense that they were twinned in their fates, that they were basically two kids living the same kind of life until the end of the novel when you realize that they weren't two kids living the same kind of life. I think Boris has a great line in there where he says, you know, I was just trying to have a good time. You were trying to be dead. You were trying you to were be wishing dead. You were dead. Right. Exactly. Now, that's not exactly true. And, you know, their their memories of those times are very different where Boris remembers uh, Theo as blacking out and kind of, in essence, Theo is the Russian and Boris is the American. That's right. the thing that you realize yeah. oh, at, the, awesome. at the end of the novel, that right. he's the sort of, you know, glum. He's not Pip, really, from Dickens because he's not a naive. Like you, you go through the novel thinking you're reading a you know, coming-of-age story about naive 13-year-old orphan, but that's not actually who he is in no. the end. I mean, he is different from Boris, but who is like an unabashed kind of uh, black market dealer in, in various ways that Theo is much more ambivalent. But, you know, I think one of the things that this book reminded me of is, and, and sort of solidifies is that Tarte is so good at creating kind of adolescent, young adult life, you know, that she's so interested in it. It almost seems like her heart and brain are still in that world somehow, you know, which was maybe less of a surprise with the secret history because she was so young when she wrote that book. But I was really amazed by those sections in Las Vegas with the two of them, even though my, you know, high school years were totally different. It reminded me so much of certain things and of certain kinds of transactions and the way certain friendships get struck up over little moments in the hall. And I don't know. I think she just this in a way this whole book is an exploration of the adolescent spirit and of of the kind of renegade revolutionary spirit that doesn't ultimately manifest in the you know shape of an artist or a revolutionary but in just like a guy who's an antiques dealer who seems to be playing the game along with everybody but actually has this rebelliousness that can't be quenched. Right. Like the rebelliousness of teenagerhood sort of turns itself into just being a shit stirrer when you're an adult. Right. The decision that she made that I was pondering is there isn't much plot in this middle section of the book. It's very airless. Like it really yeah. – it's not all that realistic like that the adults in their lives would so thoroughly abandon them to the point of not leaving them any bus money or food right. or anything. Like things like that happen but it's extremely convenient for the purposes of this book that it happened to both of them at this exact Yeah. Point. And that just – like the parents are just completely absent, right? Completely absent. They seem to spend all of their days kind of vomiting in the pool, you know, finding ever-new drugs and then getting beaten up by their fathers every once in a while. But I wonder why she chose to have it just be the two of them. I mean, it's almost like a love story of their friendship. And you get tiny snippets of other teenagers and sort of little, you know, other teenage life, but not very much at all. It's really, I I mean, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, no, go ahead, Jim. No, no, I mean, it's definitely the most fully formed relationship of any kind that he has in this book is his relationship with Boris. And so for me, that book felt like, Basically, the closest this book is ever going to come to a portrait of a marriage, like what is Theo like in a functionally monogamous relationship down to sporadic blackout sex that they have every once in a while that he doesn't remember that well later. It's like this is what Theo is like when he fixates on a person and lives his life fully with that person. And that relationship with Boris is so self-destructive that it sort of made me – that was one of the reasons why I felt like – his relationship with his mom was maybe headed nowhere good in the long run. Like they focus on each other the way that Theo and his mom focused on each other all those years ago. That's a really Um, good point. And Boris is such a totally fascinating character. And you're right, Hannah, that 
nothing really happens in that section except for that the most important thing that happens in the plot happens in that section. We just have no idea that it's happening. Right. Because Theo has no idea that it's happening, which is that Boris steals the painting. And so that big twist, which is only revealed substantially later, to me was one of the, like, my happiest moments in reading this book was it dawning on me as it dawns on Theo just how totally fooled I had been by Donna Tartt. Mm. Uh, And so from a pure (laughs) plot mechanics level... Mm. I love that. It never even dawned on me that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love when writers pull shit like that off. But how did she manage too? to make it interesting? It was just in the character of Boris, right? Yeah. Because essentially yeah. what she's saying to us at the end of the novel is you two were blacked out. Like you didn't know right. what actually was happening. You right. were so pulled along by this sort of, you know. Well, by, as Megan said, by the this total immersion in like an adolescent spirit. Yeah. I right. Mean, I think Megan's totally right that Donna Tart knows and loves kids this age. So I was really impressed with her knowledge of them on a surface level. Like, I was impressed that she really had them, like, they were reading the right books and playing the right video games and listening to the right music and talking about the right things. Even that moment when um, when Theo refers to the Harry Potter series as those old books. Right. And I was yeah. like, ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> that was a... So on the surface level, but also, yes, down deep, She, you're absolutely right, Megan, that she gets teenagers. Like, yeah. this is yeah. her milieu. I don't know. When I started reading the book, and I had forgotten that that James Wood writes about this in his review, but my first thought was like, oh, this really does remind me of being a kid reading like E. Nesbitt's novels about kids sort of adrift in cities and adventures. And there's something about the whole world. I think it was so brilliant of her to set it in this world of antique stealing, which has that, you know, veneer, no pun intended, of of kind of mystery and like at any moment an enchanted object could turn up. And and the goldfinch, which we haven't talked about, which is the painting at the heart of this book, is in a way that enchanted object. It, It isn't. It's actually a painting in the real world, but it almost functions the way like a magic goblet would, which is it Theo wants it to function that way. There's a kind of magical thinking in relationship to that object, um, which he takes out of the museum after the explosion where his mother dies. I wonder what you guys thought. I mean, I, I kind of agree, Hannah. Like, to me, in some ways, this felt underplotted, even as it then felt very overplotted at the very end. I was totally enthralled by the book, but in a weird way, I was also slightly bored in the Las Vegas section or impatient, even though I was fascinated by it. I also was like, get back to New York and to the world of antiques and into this like kind of, you know, childhood mystery world and what's going to happen there. Like it felt to me that the true heart of the novel was always going to be in New York, even though in retrospect, in some ways, the Las Vegas part is the most distinctive part and the most emotionally realized part. But I see what you mean. Like in a fantasy novel, this would be the moment that the heroes are exiled somewhere, right? right. They're not on their quest. They're right. sort of exactly. <laughs> distracted from their quest exactly. for some reason. It's a kind of well, anti-quest. He meets the anti-hero rather than the like protagonist who will help him get what he wants, right? Even though right. even though Boris does help him get what he wants in some ways. Right. But the entire function of Boris's character in that Las Vegas section is to distract Theo and us from the thing that is actually at the heart of the plot of the novel, the engine of the novel, which is that painting, right? right? We don't know what happened to the painting. And for a while, Theo doesn't even care enough about the painting to know what happens to it. I agree with you. That is how I felt, too, during that section, Megan. And part of it is just simply that there is this big – There's, it's like there's this huge unresolved chord at the heart of the novel, which is what the hell is going to happen with this painting that he stole. Right. And we know when we're reading the book that whatever is going to happen with the painting – Las Vegas is not where it's going to happen. Right. Know, of course, it turns out that's where it did happen. Right, right, but right. we, you know, when we're reading it, we're like, oh, well, he's got to get back to New York. Shit's got to happen in New York. When's he going to get back to New York? But that didn't stop that section from being like totally compelling and vivid and fun. Hey, so I'm going to pause this for a second for our word from our sponsor, audible.com. 
Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks and listen to them on nearly any device, including the one you're using to listen to us right this very second. Audible has a special offer for Audiobook Club listeners. When you sign up for a 30-day free trial membership, you will get one, count them, one free audiobook of your choice. Just visit our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash slateabc. So what will that free book be that you get here at the Audiobook Club? We like to recommend next month's book club selection, which is The Good Lord Bird by James McBride, which Audible has in audio a full version read by Michael Boatman. Uh, Michael Boatman is a really good actor who I know best as the hero of The Glass Shield, but he also has been in, like, The Good Wife and Gossip Girl and stuff, so maybe you know him from that. But anyways, we're going to be talking about that book next month. You can listen to it for free by joining Audible.com. Your membership also includes a free subscription to either The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try, and once again, please use our URL so Audible knows that you are a listener. Audiblepodcast.com slash SlateABC. Okay, to go back to the painting Theo Boris question. Yeah. Theo was not going to do anything with the paint. I mean, Theo... He had no idea what to do. With yeah, the I mean, for him, the painting is just... is He's kind of stuck around the painting the way he's stuck around Pippa, the way he's stuck around his mother, right? It's not until later that he sort of realizes his true hustler self and kind of mm-hmm. takes on the the kind of movement that his father has. But at that point, you know, Boris had to take the painting in order for anything to happen to the painting. Because as you said, Theo doesn't, he's not a boy of action at that point. He's not going to do anything. It is kind of interesting though, right? Too, because in a way, this is the open question of the book. Well, on the one hand, he's breaking into houses and he's smoking. Would it have ever graduated beyond that? You know, one of the frustrating things to me about the book was him constantly being like, I can't return the painting so I'm going to get in trouble, which, of course, is a necessary plot device. But mm-hmm. I kept thinking, just return the painting. They'll understand. Right. Exactly you were like they... a child in an right. explosion. Like, it's right. OK. You were dazed. But, of course, that actually feels very realistic, actually, probably to how children think. Right. And how certainly children who suddenly feel disenfranchised think. But it is really interesting that that thing, which, as you say, Hannah, is like the innocent thing. He's not trying to do anything with it. He didn't mean to do it. He kind of wants to give it back. He feels horrible about it. And yet that guilt leads him to do things that are intentionally wrong, which is to kind of swindle people in the antiques business. But even then, we're we're meant to ask this question of, is it really wrong? Because he himself thinks that some of the fakes that Hobie has made, the guy he works with in the antique store, are real. He thinks that they're very, very beautiful. So again, it raises this question. I mean, a lot of this book is actually about beauty and art, too, right? And about aesthetics. Like, you know, what is beautiful and what is sanctioned and beautiful and what is beautiful but not sanctioned. Right. Well, so yes, Theo feels like those pieces that Hobie makes, which are like Frankenstein pieces that he sells as real antiques, are, he thinks in many ways, more beautiful than the actual antiques that the the dupes think they're actually buying. And yeah, that is an open question all throughout this book is why do we connect to certain pieces of art or furniture or whatever? Why do certain objects have a hold on us? There's that great thing that Hobie says about how a great piece of art is. It's like someone saying psst in an alleyway. Mm. Like that's when it connects with you, that is what it feels like. It feels like it doesn't connect with anyone else that same way. And that is, to some extent, how Theo feels about those pieces that he's selling, though he also knows that that's a self-justification, that what he's really doing is 
screen people But over. see, that to me is not, the, the beauty as transferred through the inauthentic was I couldn't entirely grasp that idea. Like Hobie, who's the antique dealer, also talks about, you know, a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a painting still has that line of beauty running through it. Right. I didn't understand that exactly. Is it because the line of beauty is a projection? It's projected from you onto your memory of the thing or your understanding of what the thing is or your imagination about the thing? Sort of what did he mean by that? Or is it just I, inherent in the object so it gets transmitted even through reproduction? Like yeah, it's I mean, portable, thought... that its beauty and its its meaning is sort of portable in a way. It doesn't depend on the this sort of existence of the authentic object itself. You can transport something out of the object. And right. Take it well, that you. his mom felt so strongly about the goldfinch long before she ever saw it that first time hmm. in the gallery, right? It meant something to her. By and she'd only token. seen it in a book, so it actually right. didn't matter. Whether or not he had the original painting was irrelevant. The fact that Boris stole it was not important. Well, and it Except certainly it, it seemed important, important to him. Right? Yeah, it yeah. seemed really important to him. And then there's like this contrasting thing on, wait, hold on, I want to find this sentence. Well, because he also talks really about when it's gone, when he realizes it's not there, then he feels kind of lesser, which is a fascinating moment in the book. So there's also kind of a status, because the other thing this book is about is class, right? right. And, and but wealth. But wait, before we go there, Sorry. I want to read this one thing. Sorry. <laughs> which was really amazing, which was, I think you're right that Hobie and many people feel like the actual object itself maybe doesn't even matter as much. It's just the beauty inherent in that object transmitted from person to person. That matters. But then, at the moment that Theo thinks after they try and make the trade in the Amsterdam parking garage and they get the piece and then it gets stolen from them by that kid and they think it is gone forever. Wait, just explain that because that's totally at odds with <laughs> – I mean that's like where it just shifts into being oh, a crime Oh, yeah. Well, novel, well get, you know? let's yeah. get into the ending okay. later because I didn't understand all of it. But I did understand at one point on page 701, Theo is wrestling with these two different parts of guilt. One is the guilt that he killed a person. He shot one of the crooks who was trying to steal a painting back from them. And the other is that he thinks the painting is now basically gone forever, that some kid who doesn't know anything about it has taken it and run away and is probably going to end up in an incinerator. And it's his fault. It's functionally his fault that this beautiful thing is probably now lost forever. And he says, on page 701, he says, I didn't matter much in the scheme of things, and Martin, the guy he killed, didn't either. We were easily forgotten. But for all foreseeable time to come, the painting would be remembered and mourned. Who knew or cared the names of the Turks who blew the roof off the Parthenon, the mullahs who ordered the destruction of the Buddhas at Bamiyan? Yet living or dead, their act stood. It was the worst kind of immortality. Intentionally or no, I had extinguished a light at the heart of the world. Like, that's a very vivid way to explain what he feels has happened to this painting. And that's an argument against this notion that a reproduction still holds that line of beauty. There is still something about that magical goblet that he had, Megan, that means something to him and that means something he thinks to everyone who lays eyes upon it. Definitely. Definitely. So the, the reproduction is valuable, but it's the thing itself that is the source of that value in some way. It's very interesting. So I want to talk... Now, as Hannah suggested, about the mechanics of this book's ending, right? So we jump forward eight years. He becomes this guy who's gulling mooks into buying fake pieces of antiques. He becomes engaged to the daughter of the family that first put him up after his mother died. Um, he still yearns for Pippa, the girl who he saw in the gallery right before the explosion. But then Boris comes back into his life. There in New York, Boris finds him again by a pure random chance. And Boris has the painting. Boris has a plan for getting the painting back. Boris has, in fact, been using the painting for all these years as a sort of bargaining chip for the movement of illegal goods around the world. And this is based to some extent on fact. That amazing case very recently of those doofuses who stole all those paintings out of a museum in 
the Netherlands, yes. right? That they ended up like burning some of them probably because they just didn't know what to do with them. They didn't yeah. know how to sell them. It's impossible to sell a famous stolen painting, but it is possible to use it as a sort of bargaining chip or collateral for the trade of other illegal goods you know, guns or drugs or people or whatever. And that, it turns out, is how Boris has been using this painting for all these years, it seems like. But then he used it with the wrong people, some idiots in Miami. Maybe he got it stolen from him by an associate of his named Horst. It's not exactly clear. Was it clear to you guys? I think I understand, but it is kind of like watching a caper movie where you're like, what just happened? Right. I and did it matter? Like, does it, it matter? It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. I Thank think God. that what's-his-name's thought it had been stolen, so then he happened to know some people who happened to be in Amsterdam who happened to then go get it from them. Right. Right. And I think then... the plot is, is is intentionally a little bit improbable. Yeah. I mean, it begins with him, you know, oh, bumping God, into so. <laughs> bumping into <laughs> Boris at a bar and saying, "Hey, I haven't seen you in you know twenty years, like right. not twenty years, but you know, it's, it's like intentionally a... sort of caper, yes. slightly improbable." Or, well, it's, you know what it is? It's Dickensian, exactly. Right. I mean, I really think she was, you know, in Dickens, right? If any character enters, even if they seem to go off stage in the most definitive way, you know that they're coming back. And so, right. reading this, I thought, I know Boris, and he used she, she uses says, foreshadowing. She says it would be that, a long time yeah. before I saw Boris. Yeah, exactly, again. <laughs> exactly. She's not. She's not withholding, right? She's playing right. very consciously with those things, and also the names, right, are so Dickensian themselves. Um, like Boris's name, and then the, the um, antiques dealer's names are very are very Dickensian. And yeah. Pippa herself seems to be kind of like an homage to Pip a little bit. Lucian Race. I know. I love that. Theo. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, the lawyer had a great name too. But I think uh, to it was go like Brace Girdle or something. Yeah. Brace yes, Brace Girdle. Yes, that was amazing. Girdle. That was the yeah. real Dickensian moment. But just to go right. back to the end for a second, I think the important part of all the plot mechanics there is that Theo kills somebody, right? Right. Even though that person seems like a quote unquote bad guy, that is the real culmination of his kind of, you know, dabbling in uh, the underside of things or the underseam of things. And there is this kind of another claustrophobic part of the book is when he's holed up in this hotel in Amsterdam after this has all gone down. Oh, God, that and, took forever. you know, ugh, you're just like, oh, this is horrible. But then you're like, this is probably what it would feel like. And again, I think this is what Tart is so good at and so good at, you know, evoking is like what it feels to worry that you're evil, what it feels to have done something wrong. You know, that sickening sense of like, oh, God, I could really this could be sort of the end of my whole life. But it's also book-ended, right? The the, the beginning of the book and and that section of him in the hotel are mirrors of each other. So so one thing that's unusual about how she does the explosion is that he's alone in this place. He's, you know, there's blood, there's kind of carnage, there's death, and you're there forever. I mean, she really keeps you inside that that carnage for a long and unbelievable... You keep thinking it's got to end, but the descriptions sort of keep going on, and I think that same thing is happening in the hotel only he's an innocent in the beginning and he's not an innocent at the end. He's the killer. Although ultimately, and I remember having this feeling after reading the whole many hundreds of pages of Great Expectations, it doesn't ultimately matter. He doesn't ultimately change that much. That's also kind of an illusion that he right. was innocent and then he's right. guilty. But, Did this um, book have to be this long? So, I mean, if you're on a chart, you write one book every 10 years, you want to like give everyone their money's worth, obviously. <laughs> And there are certain virtues to being a big novel and that you can include all kinds of wonderful things that you don't otherwise get a chance to include if this is a 300-page thriller or whatever about a kid who steals a painting. But at the same time, like that scene in the hotel room in Amsterdam, I felt like this is like the 20th time that we've been with him while he's had a fever. 
He just has so many fevers, and he goes out of his head so often, and it takes forever. It takes so long for things to happen. And like in the gallery scene, I loved it because it was so vivid, and I was on the edge of my seat to find out what would happen. But like I didn't really think he was going to kill himself. And I knew that Boris was going to come back eventually, but it took like 50 pages for us to get to that Well, it's funny. This is what James Wood essentially complained about in his New Yorker review is how much better a novelist she could be if she was more spare, sort of if she edited herself better, if she didn't use, you know, 12 synonyms for flopping around the pool (laughs) when one would suffice, you know. I guess I think that she's having fun. Like I, I was kind of very conscious of her indulgence. I feel that she's a friendly novelist. Like she wants everything to be accessible to you in a funny way, kind of every thought, every movement, every idea by the end. You know, she's like, you can imagine her teaching a class about this novel and she's doing that in the last 10 pages of the novel. And I found that endearing, if not entirely, you know, always sophisticated. I thought it was really endearing. I think you're right that she's having fun and there's almost a quality of pastiche in her work. It's that's not Right, but that's too far to go. But I think she's entirely aware. I mean, I think she's a very intelligent and aware novelist. And this is what she wanted to make. This is the object she wanted to make was a big, sprawling book. I mean, I think she talked in interviews about wanting to make the kind of book she loved to get lost in as a child. And I really did feel like this reading experience was one of the closer experiences I have had as an adult to reading the way I read as a kid, partly because even though in some ways we were stuck in these places for long periods of time and it wasn't clear what was happening, it was somehow riveting, right? I I don't know if you guys felt this, but I couldn't put it down. I was just, I read it so quickly. And it makes sense to me when I read her work that she was friends with Brett Easton Ellis because even though their work is so different on the face of it, there is a similar kind of interest in surfaces and forms and genre and playing with genre and a kind of in it and slightly out of it at the same time. You know, like this is kind of like Dickens, but then it's doesn't give you some of the satisfactions that a Dickens novel would give you. Um, It's more ambiguous, I think, in some ways. You know, Theo himself is more ambiguous than some of Dickens's heroes or I don't know. She obviously knows exactly what she is doing. You know, that's why, like James Woods's review, there were many things about it that I in some ways agreed with. Although it seems like in the end what he wants is for her to like to actually write the 300-page version of this book, which would not be nearly as good as this version for all the problems I potentially had with this version. And like he ends it with this line, does Donna Tartt have any idea of the very different writer she might still choose to become? Which was like crazy. Donna Tartt is exactly the writer she wants to be. I can't think of any other writer who is more the exact kind of writer she wants to be than Donna Tartt. But Megan, what you said about the experience of reading this being like having read books as a child is so absolutely true. Even that way that you had the illusion of plot, like you, you you could feel that there was lots of plot happening when actually there wasn't. It was something about the way the writing jumps, or I don't even know why it was so easy to read, given that it was. It's actually really hard to pinpoint what it is, you know? (laughs) It's it's not Harry Potter. It's not like it's driven by a superficial plot and they're moving all over the place all the time. Uh, It's not even obvious what the quest is or what Theo's trying to do or where he's trying to go or get to. There's no obvious propelling through line, and yet it's very easy to read. And it's easy to read in a different way than even a novelist like Jonathan Franzen, who I think is incredibly skilled at getting us involved with the characters and plot and very, you know, plot functions is an important part of his, you know, especially freedom. But this feels more like a thriller somehow, right? 
Right. Partly because Even it there's is. there's long sections right. where right. it doesn't hold to those mechanics at all. Right, right. And partly because it, it does have this crime novel caper thing, which, she, you know, again, I think she's playing with these genres that, that many of which you brought up, Dan. I think she's she kind of wants to delve into them. And there is great fun to be had always. I mean, that's like a great trope, the innocent who gets wrapped up in some kind of crime baloney. And it's fun, you know, because we know that Theo is not really that innocent. But then when you put him in a parking garage with Boris and a gun, all of a sudden he actually turns out is really very innocent. Right. But he's still, you know, he carries it off pretty well. He gets them out of that scrape and that is fun to watch. I have a question for you guys. Yes. Do you think Donna Tart really actually knows that like a lot about art or has she just fooled me into thinking she knows a lot about art? I now have a vision of like for the next 50 years, there are going to be people lined up to see this painting Hmm. in the museum (laughs) in the Netherlands, right? This painting is going to be hugely popular. I never even heard of it before I read this novel, but like now I think of it as like one of the great masterpieces. She's convinced me (laughs) through the voice of Theo and his mom that it is one of the great masterpieces. Is it? I don't know. And the things she has to say about our emotional connections to art seemed really right on and smart to me, but like, would an art historian read this book and be like, what the hell are you talking about, Donna Tart? This is crazy. Well, she doesn't call on art experts or art intellectuals. You know, the person whose emotional connection to this painting is important is an amateur. Right. It's a person who failed to get her art degree. Right. Uh, when she ultimately, and I guess it's in the voice of Theo, although I don't think convincingly, describes what is beautiful about the painting and what's moving about the painting, it's interesting. It's partly based on the historical details of what happened to... Uh, Fabricius. Is that how you pronounce his name? Mm -hmm. Carl Fabricius. Well, and Horst has that line too. The other place where we really get like – the one place where she most convinced me was in Horst's line where he says all the great masters, what they're doing is they're basically making jokes. Like they're Mm -hmm. so great that you can tell their paintings because they are willing to fuck around with painting in a way that no one else would be able or willing to do because they're amusing themselves through the painting of these paintings. And they make the case that this painting is an example of that. That seems right. so true, but that I don't know. Is really that Which is what she's doing. I mean, I don't feel like Donna Tart is stretching to show us her expertise yeah. in art, right? Mm-hmm. She's a person who is seems somewhat interested in an amateurish <laughs> way and has, you know, has, has, has sort of read enough about the Dutch masters and sees that this painting is interesting largely because it's contextless, you know, because it's this bird alone. And, and he was a, he was meant to be, you know, Rembrandt's most gifted student, I think, mm-hmm. Fabricius, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So Sorry, Donna Tart tells me. Well, right. but 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 I've read that otherwise in other places. But you know what she is really interested in, and what she is an expert on is aesthetics. I think that she genuinely has profoundly interested in the questions of aesthetics. So whether or not she's, you know, as versed in art history as I don't think she's probably as versed as an art historian. How versed she is in art history, I'm not sure. But all of this seemed pretty persuasive to me, and and certainly persuasive about her interest in these questions, right? What do you mean by interested in aesthetics? The novel struck me as genuinely engaged by the question of, like, what does it mean to make a beautiful fake, right? And mm-hmm. and I think in a way that's what part of what she's interested in as a writer, too, because she's using these genres and forms a little bit that in some ways aren't regarded fully as literary, right? And she is a literary novelist, and, you know, she's kind of one of the few literary novelists in the best-selling, you know, fiction top ten right now. But she's also in some ways you know, sort of an adventure novelist. Like, The Secret History was a bit of an adventure. It's, like, almost trashy, right? But it's not. It it is literary. And I think she's I've always thought of her as the in-between space, like, somewhere in between. But I think think she is actually literary. Not in-between, but both. I think she is actually literary, though, because I think she's interested in this precise question of, and I think it correlates to the question of, if you make a fake and it's beautiful, 
what is that, right? It's, right. it's, it's sort of analogous. It's not quite. I'm overstretching a little bit for the sake of argument. But I think that there is an analogy there. And I think that's why whether or not she knew anything about her history didn't matter to me because within the context of the novel, I found it completely persuasive. I found the world of aesthetics that these kind of rich and also it's connected to being rich in some way, right? And kind well, of aspiration sure. and, you know, but sort of this connection that, you know, I think we do all make it in a weird way is present in, in children's fantasy literature too, right? That the hero is always secretly the prince or the chosen one, right? And and that, you know, beautiful objects kind of go along with beautiful people. And in a way, that's not true in this book, but also is kind of true. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned briefly before the way how obsessed this book is with class. And yeah. you're absolutely right that it totally is because Theo is, because his world forces him to be, because he ends up depending on everyone richer than him in various ways to even, you know, make his way in the world for many years of his life. You know, I just, um, hearing you guys talk and the many ways in which Theo is the goldfinch and the metaphor between Theo and the goldfinch is, you know, that Theo is also has no obvious context or roots in his past from hand to hand to hand. And in some ways how Theo is created and what he becomes is a product of kind of other people's you know, visions of him and printing on him hmm. as he moves through the world, very similar to a painting, I guess. You don't yeah. know what the original Theo is. Right. Theo and also gets the stolen the orphan. moment that bomb yeah. goes off, and yeah. then he's passed from hand to hand for right. the years afterwards. And I right. think he's also like the goldfinch in the painting, right? In that he's a captive. I think that's part of what we're meant to think at the end, is that we're all kind of captive in some way to ourselves. <laughs> you right. know, and, and, well, and actually, we're either captive to society and society's ideas of what we should be and how we should live, or we're captive to our psychology, right? The, both things are a form of captivity, but maybe the latter is the, is the freer form of captivity. Uh, so you guys are both women, as I recall. <laughs> How did you guys feel about the lady characters in this book? I asked this because a critic I know wrote to me the other day and just an email that just simply said, Donna Tartt's women characters. Whoa. Hmm. Well, uh, I think she's much more interested in men, right? Like, yes. I feel like all of her best characters. I actually, I'm only just a little bit into the little friend, so I can't, I shouldn't speak I shouldn't speak so authoritatively, but but I was but I was thinking about this reading the book that she's just so interested in men in the same way that she's interested in in kind of young youthfulness and she's really I think I don't know I'm not a man but it seems to me she's very good at it I don't know I mean I think she's very good at it but I'm she's sort of surprisingly not great at creating like non stereotypical women characters like there's a manic pixie dream girl and then there's a fake manic pixie dream girl and then there's his sainted mother well the mothers and then are like the trashy I vegas thought, lady I yeah the, i thought xandra was actually I, very yeah. realistic I agree. <laughs> and i thought the mother i thought mrs barber was kind of an amazing character actually i, I liked mrs that. barber but she's definitely a type right? oh like, it was not hard sure. to figure out what mrs barber was going to do from moment to moment and i didn't get the sense of her having a like a particularly rich inner life in the way that even like you know Hobie had. Right. Although at the end she did. I mean, she cracked open Mrs. Barber at the end after Mrs. Barber suffered her tragedies and became, you know, trapped in a dark room in the back of the house. She was a person. I don't know. I didn't buy her. Like, Hmm. she felt like a type to me throughout that book. She was, initially she was the intact version of the type. And then later she was the broken version of the type, but she was still a type. But who's not a type? Yeah, I think they're all slightly types. Yeah, like his father, you know, his father's a type. Mr. Barber is the kind of, you know, manic, depressive, crazy. Oh, I I mean, I didn't think Boris was a type. I didn't think Hobie was a type. Hobie's a type. I don't think so. I don't think there's a type for woodworker in the village who takes kids way more seriously than kids should expect to be. Oh, but that's like a fantasy novel type. 
he's the avuncular he's adult like who's able to Dumbledore. translate. Exactly. Yeah, he is. He's he's that's who he, right. He's able to translate between the adult and the child world and. And yeah, so he did. And the things that he does and the way that he lives his but life I mean, is in a concrete way, which is fascinating to children. There's but a whole thesis a to be way. written about. Right. There's a whole thesis to be written in which every character in the Goldfish gets its Harry Potter. <laughs> like, I'm sure someone's doing that right now. <laughs> oh, that's insulting. It's going to make our listeners not want to read this novel. I, I really yeah, think yeah. this novel is delightful. Love Harry to I do too. Yeah. I do too. I think it's a great holiday book to read too. There's something yeah. about it. It's very engrossing. It kind of brings you out of. There's something slightly enchanted about it. And, yeah. Um, it worked for me. I, I would read, actually read on part Wednesday, two. Thursday, and Friday over Thanksgiving, <laughs> when was, like, oh, pushing my family away as much as I could. <laughs> so no football for you, or was it football no, no. plus the Goldfinch? <laughs> uh, I watched like the first quarter of the Packers game before right. I became aware how terrible they are. Uh, all right, so recommend all around. We, yes, we're absolutely. all in agreement here. Recommend yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, it's totally fun. Even though I'm not James Wood, I think maybe it could be 50 pages shorter. But right. like, whatever. Who's going to call down a chart on the phone and be like? Could you cut 50? Right. Yeah. No one's going to do right. that, nor should they, really. Yeah. Right. I mean, it definitely has its frustrations, but I think that, that I, I really thought it was – she's just – she's very, very, very good at what she does. I really don't yeah. know anyone who can do exactly what she does. Yeah, I don't know any other novelist who is writing books like this right now. Yeah. Like, I was trying – like, racking my brain trying to think of someone who does this, but no one does this. And, like, it's, like, a great argument for – writing like a one great bestseller at the beginning of your career like she can now live her life like writing exactly the books she wants to write and there probably will be fabulous successes but even if they weren't like it wouldn't matter she could just write her own kind of totally like sui generis novel that is its own thing and no one else is doing it because she can just live off secret history royalties forever forever and ever and ever amen <laughs> all right so thank you thank you hannah thank you megan for joining sure. me for this thanks a program note in our next audiobook club, we're discussing The Good Lord Bird by James McBride. It is a comic novel about John Brown, if you can imagine. And it just won the National Book Award for fiction. So read it or listen to it, and then join us for our discussion on January 10th. Also, I now am pleased to plug our very first ever live audiobook club. We are, will be traveling to Seattle in February, and we're appearing live at the Town Hall in Seattle, Washington. Uh, it's a big literary week there as the Associated Writing Programs Conference will be downtown all week and we're happy to be joining in the festivities. Tickets are already on sale, even though we don't yet know which of us will be there or even what book we're discussing. <laughs> but but if you're such a big fan that you are just like, I got to get a ticket right now, please go to Slate.com slash Seattle ABC to buy your tickets. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is Slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at Slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. And please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you don't already. It helps other people discover the show. Just search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store and leave a comment while you're there. Our producers are Chris Wade and Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Hannah Rosen and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Dan Coyce. Thank you for listening. Thank you.